City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Uh, we're on City Limits. I've got a microphone that's playing up, but I'll work my way around and I'll go with it. <laughs> and uh, it is City Limits. It's the, um, it's the uh, second Wednesday of the month. Is it the first? No, the first, of course. We had May Day last week. Kevin, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> I'm Kevin the Idiot. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got Zeb Peake with us, who thankfully isn't an idiot, so she'll put the show into some sort of order. Karina's mm, um, pressing the buttons and so far doing a magnificent job, actually. She's even throwing punches over there. Maybe that's uh, at the Richmond Football Club, because unfortunately, bad week that there, Karina. Um, Bulldogs first loss. She's looking a bit... She's not looking as good as she was last week, or the week before, is she? No. <laughs> Anyway, today is, um, well, Zeb, in fact, you've teed up today's guest, so tell us who's coming on. It's Transport Day, and our regular guest, our regular transport guru, John McPherson, is gallivanting around on trains in New South Wales and Queensland at the moment. He'll be back next month, but um, this month on transport, we've got Zeb what? Um, well, first up, we've got Ian Hundley, who is another person from the Stop Nell Alliance. We interviewed a couple of people from that Alliance um, last month, and they talked about the kind of environmental and uh, community effects of the North East Link. Uh, and Ian's going to talk a little bit more about the campaign and um, some of the like car dependency and um, history of uh, um, highways in Melbourne. And then after that, we've got Daniel Bowen from the Public Transport Users Association, or the PTUA. Um, and we'll hear a little bit about what's going on there at the moment. Excellent. And, of course, our John is a former vice president of that body. So uh, there we are. I'm going to pause. Anyone want, want tea? It's yes, Chinese, Chinese white tea today. Might be one of the last times we can drink it. Could just think the government might soon ban the import of all teas from China the way we're going. So, oh, no. Um, who knows? Um, so, so there, we there we are. Okay, now, look, I'm going to... Say something, because I'm about to have to stand up and pass the tea over the, the shield <laughs> yeah. here, because uh, we've got shields in the studio now to protect each other from each other. <laughs> well, I suppose one of the big uh, news items that people are talking about this week is the uh, Victorian government's announcement about their emissions target for 2030. So um, they've gone for 45 to 50% reduction in emissions, uh, which is a lot better than the federal government's plan, but it's still... Um, like obviously people are wanting more and uh, I know that the Friends of the Earth um, Act on Climate campaign were pushing for a 75% reduction. Um, Do you have anything to say on that, Kevin? I did. What I was going to say was I thought we might look at that next week as well because it is our energy week next week. Lee Eubank, who of course is with FOE, um, he was on the FOE program yesterday talking about it, but I hope we might get someone from there again next week just to update us and we're not too proud to repeat interviews because so, <laughs> um, it is an important issue and uh, we'll probably have a look at that in our Energy Day next week, yeah. Speaking of such matters, um, hang on, I'm going to have a sip of tea first though. Hang on, here we go. Ah, what a lovely sound. For <laughs> um, the... Uh, 
doesn't the, the number of health bodies, um, public public and private type health bodies like the AMA, uh, HESTA, which is the, the health super fund, the Nursing and Midwifery Federation, the union, the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, Doctors for the Environment Australia, and the Climate and Health Alliance are among 56 people who've signed an open letter to the Prime Minister urging him to ramp up the government's what they call laggard climate change response. So mm. that's just in the last few days. Um, interesting, this was actually in the Herald Sun of all places, but the line I liked was the open letter seen by the Herald Sun. Well, if it's an open letter, everyone bloody will see it. I, mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why they suddenly think they've got a scoop. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that. But it calls for them to prioritise health in the country's contribution to the Paris Agreement, commit to decarbonising the healthcare sector by 2040 and implement a national climate strategy. Climate and Health Alliance Executive Director Fiona Armstrong said, we are collectively urging the government to heed these calls to avert an escalating health crisis from climate change. Um, and at the same time, though, the Prime Minister uh, headed up, this is a speech he made a week or so ago, headed up and he, he was speaking in Portland, or he was speaking about Portland, which of course is the centre for Alcoa and it heavily subsidised for years by all of us, the biggest user of electricity in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said industrial heartlands like the Victorian regional city of Portland will reap the benefits of innovation needed for Australia to reach net zero emissions. Then he goes on about how they're going to benefit from all the technology he's going to introduce and the pi- the pioneering entrepreneurship and innovation of Australia will be won in places like the Pilbara, the Hunter, Gladstone, Portland, Wyala, Bell Bay and the Riverina and on he goes. And the key to meeting our climate change ambitions is commercialisation of low emission technology. He says yeah. nothing to do with actually stop using energy and cutting it back. Apparently, so that's good news. And to back it up, though, to show the government's consistent, there's a, the the financial review is speculating that the federal budget will set aside money for the government to build a gas-fired power station in New South Wales. They're saying it's now going to happen. So. Uh, so that's that's contrary to all those. Um, they, so the the other side of that, of course, is the Victorian government this week announcing those yeah. targets you set, which are at least higher. Um, as we say, they're not quite as good as they should be, but at least they're a little higher than yeah. Uh, they were and last perhaps week. they that would put some pressure on the federal government. I don't really know how that would work. Maybe then the federal government would be like, oh, okay, well the states are doing everything, so we'll just leave our twenty eight percent. Reduction target in. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's all we know. I mean, no seeing explaining to our listeners what that's all about. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, we also know that um, the our government, this government, makes appointments uh, from within its own ranks and within the business community to all sorts of things. Which, if Labor did the same thing, say with unions and, and bodies associated with the working class movement. They'd be screaming and yelling all over every newspaper about bias, etc. For instance, <laughs> since they came, since Abbott won government, every appointment to the Fair Work Commission, as we've pointed out, has come from the employer's side. So now it's stacked very heavily in favour of that side. And recently, of course, we saw um, we saw uh, the woman from Indi, um, Bellicosa. What's her name? Um, her anyway, uh, she. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. I get confused with names I give people on the week that lost to their real names. But anyway, uh, she uh, she's now um, 
on that commission as well. Well, just this week with ASIC, which is needed to have, that's the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, that needed replacement because the bloke resigned and the deputy resigned over matters to do with their their, um, expenses. Mm -hmm. And he's just appointed a bloke called... um, a bloke called Joseph Longo. Now, it's interesting because the current Minister for Industrial Relations, of course, is a former partner with Freehills, the biggest, probably the biggest anti-worker legal firm in Australia. Mm. It, it, helped, uh, it helped Howard draw up work choices, for instance. Yeah, OK. Uh, and this bloke also, it's coming from Freehills into this position. So here's another appointment of that sort. Um, And he's also got a background in all sorts of things uh, over the years, but just yet another appointment by government to those sort of positions. And in fact, many, many years ago, he actually worked uh, as a lawyer for Alan Bond. So he's got a pretty good background there. Um, And uh, he's now been appointed to to run that. And also, the the takeovers panel, the the panel which looks at... uh, which reviews takeover decisions and, uh, and and is somewhere where people can appeal to. Again, he's just put three new appoint or two new appointments to that, um, and they are from Goldman Sachs, which is one of the big finance companies of the world, of course, and Cause Chambers Westgarth, another one of the big end of town um, conservative lawyers. So again, uh, we're seeing these jobs being filled. As I say, if if the reverse happened, then you'd be screaming and yelling all over. But it seems okay if you put those people on; they're obviously responsible and neutral, and they can do all that sort of thing. So it's great. And mixed with all that, of course, and their their allegiance to to business, uh, we're seeing all sorts of handouts taking place or about to take place, either are, are taking place or about to take place in the budget. And for instance, and you mentioned Zeb a couple of weeks ago about the the diesel allowance, the the allowance in which mm-hmm. you know, the farmers and, and mining companies, especially, and the point is, the the argument is they get the diesel rebate because they they're not they, driving they're on the not roads, using them on the roads, yeah. etc. But at the moment, there's a move toward even using cleaner, cleaner road, cleaner trucks, and, and even one mob's coming up with a hydrogen driven truck at uh, Fortescue in Western Australia. But nonetheless, the the mining companies are pleading with government saying it's too early to get rid of the rebate, um, the millions we get, because it's going to be a slow process. So even though we might be going to non-diesel, we still demand the millions we get in diesel rebate, which of is course, just wonderful, isn't it? So, and I'm sure the government will agree with them. It, it knows all that. Uh, and in fact, also, the government has just changed... Uh, change the law because there's been a problem with proxy, proxy proxies at, at board meetings, I think we're aware, who who try to overthrow uh, or or vote against what the what the board wants when you know when the board is probably doing mm, what the, yeah, okay. only for the board. Uh, and the government has changed the rules so it's much more harder for proxies to affect uh, the big business people sitting up there on the boards. And the head of the Business Council of Australia, a bloke called Tim Reid, wrote an article this week saying it's a very good, you know, it's a good start, this this decision by the government. And, and in fact, all the members of boards are coming out saying what a wonderful thing it is that, uh, that uh, the government has changed this. Now, Tim Reid, 
uh, you'll be pleased to know in just one company was paid $26.9 million in cash Oof. vested equity and shares at the float of a company and uh, he, um, he obviously uh, has some interest in making sure that uh, board mm. and directors are not too heavily affected. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. there there are some slight, slightly good news items as well that I saw today. Mm. Um, <laughs> there was this another. Is city limits. Yeah, be careful. Be careful. We're... Well, you know, gotta gotta have some some balance from the young people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but good news, good God. Um, yeah, I just saw that there was another company that pulled out of um, or said that they would not um, support the Dani. Uh, Carmichael Mine, I think it was called yeah. Arch Insurance or something like that. So the campaign to um, get various companies to sort of divest from Adani is still going on, still going strong. Um, and there's also the Tour de Carmichael. The, that's, the bike ride. Yeah, it's going yeah. on at the moment, the Wangan and Jagalingu yeah, tell people. Us, are, I mean, uh, yeah, that's that's primarily an Indigenous initiative, isn't it? But Yeah. Uh, tell us about it. Do you know, what do you know? I yeah. don't know much except that um, I think the ride is like 100 Yeah, it's a long one. one. Um, And there's a good amount of people that have gone, I think like 150 or um, something like that. So hopefully that will bring sort of renewed uh, attention to that issue, which is... Has been going on for so long now, That's like right. years and yeah. years. And they said they've tried the law and it failed, and now they're just yep. trying a sort of direct action and seeing how they go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of, um, well, this this is good news if you happen to be a a um, a shareholder in Netflix, by the way. So oh. yeah, it is good news at least in some areas. <laughs> good, yeah, good news for some people. We're pleased to know. I, I've worked out. I, I put the calculation through it, but on what they made last year in Australia and the tax they paid in Australia. They paid of their of their income in Australia last year. Their tax the tax they actually paid was point naught three percent. Wow. Point naught three percent. I've worked out. Um, so that's good, isn't it? And there is there a bit of a move on to suggest they should pay a bit more. But you know, come on, they apparently the way they do it and they the do, the way they do it is that the the Australian Netflix has actually come the there's a company in the Netherlands an entity of Netflix in Netherlands which actually runs Australia so um, people subscribing here are billed by the Netherlands entity and then the money is collected in Australia but on behalf of Netflix mm. International but through all that they manage to make sure they don't pay any taxes you see yeah. um, but then they do say and they all say this and I don't disagree with them we comply with all Australian and international tax law. In addition, we invest aggressively in Australian content. <laughs> aggressively, yes, wow. Yes, aggressively. Yeah. They also aggressively make sure they don't pay any tax. Yeah. Um, wow, companies are so predictable. Like you can, They just use the same tactics every time. <laughs> oh, they, and they all say, and they do, they probably do pay le- their legal tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just that, uh, yeah. That's, yeah. We could probably, you know, just stop reading the news and just, you know, pick a random company and say that they're paying a small amount of tax. And <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's um, they. And of course, um, 
you know, remember the famous line by Kerry Packer years ago about, you know, anyone who pays their taxes is mad. You see that? And if I used, on the week that was for years, um, I used to have this running joke, which was not very funny, really, but uh, this this running joke, you know, with Kerry saying, uh, uh, they say there's only two certainties in life, uh, death and uh, death and uh, death and death. <laughs> Christ, what's the other one? <laughs> that was that awful joke. Yeah, that's right. Oh, gosh. Um, anyway, that's that's just that. Uh, they also they also want uh, the the business lot also want a um, um, they want well they, there was a survey this week that showed for this year's budget they desperately want taxation and workplace reforms that means they pay less tax and they workers work harder for less money that's mm, that's yeah. just what that means in real terms. And they want the introduction of a twenty percent investment allowance, so that you know they can invest. Now, I always think if you're going to in, if you invest because there's profit at the end result of investment, it's up to you in free enterprise to do it. But they they always seem to want the government to give them some incentive to invest. When I would have thought the incentive was profit if you're going to make money out of it. But uh, yeah, it's funny it? how you know on one side you can argue for the free market, you know get the government to step back, but not when the government is, you know, giving you incentives. <laughs> no, right. then the government <laughs> should be stepping in. But it also distorts the so-called market forces that they regard as being so bloody important. Once the government gets involved putting money into it, the market forces goes out the window in terms of being in, being part of the process, really, because it uh, doesn't work. And again, because of no students coming here from overseas and these private colleges that, you know, again, set up just for the profit of those who run them anyway, are screaming and yelling that they're losing money. And the government is about to throw $53 million in their direction to save some of these companies that are hitting a brick wall. Um, And so... You know, it's, again, it's just uh, money going out to these people. If they can't, if they can't operate as profit-running enterprises, well, bad luck. Go to the wall, I say, because there's plenty of other places for students to get an education. I would think, and particularly in the, perhaps even in the public sector, even if that's run down as it is by, uh, yeah. And this week, Westpac, of course, trebled its profit, which was great news to know, uh, and it's also part of a push by banks to say government should give them allowance, again, another allowance, because if they invest in cloud computing because it's seen more as a service than an investment, mm. they they can't claim, whereas they can for everything else they buy, they can claim tax returns. Okay. Um, so they're screaming out that cloud computing be, be allowed as a tax break for business. At the same time, and that that's part of their process, of course, of, of using less workers anyway, and Having announced a treble in profit, then it, not not quite a treble, but 21%, Westpac at the same time announced it plans to cut its costs by 21% over the next three years, and it doesn't know how many staff that will have, mean it'll have to get rid of, but it's it's already announcing it's going to have less staff, yeah. having, having trebled its profit in the past year, which uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the other side of that is, of course, that they're also screaming out that a number of, a couple of business people wrote an article this week, a bloke from Chairman of Retirement Income at Challenger Limited in a place called Mercer, another investment mob, and they're urging that pensioners be urged and, and older people, people superannuants, be urged to spend their money uh, rather than save it, that you know, the answer to uh, 
the answer to old retirees and super is for them to spend the bloody thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, this extra expenditure in the economy should have a multiplier effect of about 1.2 over the first two years. These additional um, drawdowns would result in almost $9 billion of additional annual spending through the economy. This would be a significant boost to the economy, equal to about etc. So on they go. So all they care about, again, is the economy and the fact that the older people could end up broke, but that's beside the point. And to finish this line off, the other, other side of business getting everything again is they're also complaining that jobs that young people these days just don't want to work. They're hooked on handouts by JobKeeper, etc. Isn't it terrible? They don't want to do work like serve coffees and things. It's Yep, Bloody that's me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't want to work. Yep, that's, right. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Everyone's putting up their hair to this studio. It's quite strange. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, people, do, yeah, they actually, one bloke actually said, JobKeeper makes it harder for business. People don't want to leave home, travel to work, pay for petrol, and then work for at least eight hours when they could just be sitting at home. Well, that's right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better than one. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> but not to them, apparently. That's, 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 they're, they're the bludgers. It's not, the bludgers aren't those who depend on, who, who claim they need all this government handout mm-hmm. just, to, just to survive. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, speaking uh, of not working, maybe um, we're... Getting, getting up to, to time, guest, so yes. yeah, we might take a short break and then uh, get on Ian Hundley. Yep. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Luqman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient and electronic music. Yalla habaybna Shunatrin Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika Salaam 
Okay, back on city limits, and uh, now we have Ian Hundley on the line from the Stop the Northeast Link Alliance. Ian, how are you going? Um, well, thanks very much. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, Shall we just hop straight into it? And I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of uh, background and history to um, how the North East Link is, has been planned and, and things like that. So do you have, you know, some comments on the car dependency in Melbourne? Uh, well, yes, thanks very much for that. Um, yes, I mean, the freeway project is one that the government proposes to link the Western Ring Road with the Eastern Freeway and it's currently costed at about $16 billion, so it's a very expensive project. Um, it's an area that's particularly poorly served by public transport and active transport services infrastructure, and I think that's a point that needs stressing, and that's always been the case. Um, the concept was in the 1969 transport plan, um, uh, which basically um, had the whole of the Melbourne metropolitan area as it was then in a grid pattern of of freeways, <clears throat> a large proportion of which haven't come to pass, but many have nevertheless. Um, this particular project was um, was uh, sort of put on hold by the Hamer government in 1973, and uh, the the roads lobby, for the want of a better term, and particularly the freight lobby, have been rattling around trying to have it resurrected. Yeah, and, and the, yeah. Um, I suppose the impact of the North East Link is that there's an impact uh, in itself of the freeway being built um, or the toll road being built. Um, mm. But then there's also the impacts of what that means for uh, transport and public transport in the future. So... Um, it sort of paves the way for uh, another go at the east-west link. Is that right? Yeah, I was, I was uh, going to raise that as a as a very relevant factor. Um, I mean, the reality is that car dependency in Melbourne overall is probably no is probably as bad now as it's ever been, uh, despite the fact that um, successive governments have said that. Uh, they're interested in sustainable transport in its various forms. Um, but in that respect, it's the middle and outer suburbs that are really the worst hit because public transport and, indeed, access to reasonable um, um, uh, walking and cycling capability is really poor in those suburbs and shows no sign of of getting any better. Um, the other important point for for households in those areas is that, it, as a consequence of this, uh, they're forced to be two, three, and sometimes four-car households, which is an enormous imposition on on household um, household income. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Ian, um, 1973 with Hamer. Uh, but, of course, one of the ironies is, we've mentioned on this program many times, the Eastern Freeway, as it now is, was originally being set aside by the Board of Works as the Doncaster Rail Line, but we've never seen the rail line. All we've seen is a freeway, of course. And and once the North East Link is, is completed, then any prospect of that rail line will disappear completely. Yeah, that's an, in, an interesting point. Um, 
In fact, I believe they did start to, to uh, build the Doncaster Rail service uh, from Victoria Park Station um, for access onto the Eastern Freeway Reservation. But uh, they thought the worst of it and, and filled in the hole that they were building for that purpose and, as you say, went ahead with uh, the Eastern Freeway and initially up to Doncaster Road. Um, and then it's, of course, been extended since then. Um, and uh, it really does throw a spanner in the works as far as Doncaster Rail is concerned. Um, um, we have been told that uh, the busway that they propose as an alternative, in a sense, to, to Doncaster Rail, that that corridor um, would be available for a future rail service at an unspecified date, but I... I don't hear that being said with all that much conviction by government spokespersons, um, and um, I don't particularly believe it either. Mm, okay. I would suggest no conviction, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I know that your campaign, part of your campaign, has been to sort of pressure local councils uh, to take action and, and say no to this project. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, how local government has responded to the North East Link? Yes, I mean, it's an interesting one. Um, as you probably know, that the, uh, the Victorian government initially uh, put to the public at large, including local government authorities, um, what is in, in essence was four lines on a map. That is, um, they said, we are committed to build this very large freeway, but we would like to hear from you folks as to where it should be. Um, and so they were projected as options A, B, C and D. And option A is the one that they chose, which, as I said at the outset, um, is in a corridor from the Western Ring Road um, through uh, the city of Banyul into the city of Manningham to link the Eastern Freeway at uh, Bulleen slash Baldwin North. Um, the other three options were further to the east and north, um, many of us were sceptical that the government really had any serious thought of actually choosing either options B, C or D and always was going to go with option A, which is what they did. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting as well. I feel like a lot of these types of projects, um, they sort of want to project this idea that they are, you know, involving the community in the decision making and things like that. So um, they put out all of these supposed options um, to give that idea that they're giving the community a choice. Um, but they don't, you know, even consider the fact that perhaps the community doesn't want that project at all. Mm. Yes, I mean, and, and with local government as, in a sense, uh, important spokespersons for local communities uh, were, were quite feeble in that space. Uh, I mean, the four particular councils involved were Burundara, uh, Manningham, Whitehorse and Banyul, and there was never any real contestation of the, the idea that what we need there is a, is a very large freeway um, so they weren't really in the space of, of um, effective transport and land use planning at all. 
but the, it basically ended up as a bit of a bun fight between some of the councils as to where it, where the project should go, which is probably what the Victorian government was hoping they would do. Yeah, they work on that so divide and conquer of, principle, don't they? They, they? They've done it for years, and they always... It's interesting, they always come up with, say, A, B, C and D, and they always... A, the one they want will have a cost-benefit of about $8,000 million, and every other one will lose about the same. And then they say, which one? And, uh, mm. you know, mm. you know from the start, you're going you're gonna to get what they want. Yeah. yeah they, didn't, they didn't even get to that stage with this one. Uh, there's been no sort of realistic benefit-cost analysis done of any of the options, um, including the including the, the one that they chose. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things that did come out of the... Uh, the the, the panel that was appointed by the by the planning minister Richard Wynne uh, was some evidence that was actually put by the city of Burundara by um, their expert witness who concluded that the project is not actually going to attract a level of traffic that would give them a positive benefit cost analysis based on their own notional figures of cost um, which we might have a bit more to say about a bit later but um, um, even though the, the project would do a, a lot of environmental damage and affect the amenity of, of thousands of residents along the corridor, it may nevertheless end up with some sort of a boondoggle in financial terms, which which I find rather interesting. Mm. Well, the Edgerton, his name was that bloke who wrote the report for the government, the, the Liberal government for the East-West League, I mean, even it showed a... Uh, only it only gained 0.5 of every dollar, so um, you know they even though even then they still wanted to go ahead and do it. Yes, that's right. Um, and they they tried to confect some associated arguments uh, to basically get the, the benefit cost analysis um, over one, um, which I think no one in, no one in the transport planning space of any seriousness uh, took as being a valid approach. Yeah, but the, I mean the really significant thing I think to to look at here is how poor the public transport is in this corridor. When I say the corridor, I mean that sort of area that sort of extends pretty much from Melbourne Airport through to um, uh, through to those uh, arterial roads in the city of Whitehorse, um, mm-hmm. like Blackburn Road, um, Elga Road, etc., Springvale Road, uh, which are already very heavily trafficked, and this project would actually increase the traffic on those corridors. Yeah, and you also offer, you mentioned um, Rosanna Road as, I'm not sure exactly where that is, um, but that that would be a, a specific sort of issue um, for with traffic um, if the North Eastern goes ahead. Mm. Well, it's, it's, it's an issue now, <laughs> and the, the government has basically latched on to Rosanna and the very heavy volumes of traffic that do, do go along. Rosanna Road, as a as a rationale, was as a principal rationale really for the um, for the for the North East Link. They're saying what it'll do is to get uh, long haul traffic and particularly heavy heavy trucks off Rosanna Road. And um, indeed, there are plenty of trucks on Rosanna Road um, at particular times of the day and particular times of the week. Uh, it, it fluctuates quite a lot. Um, there may be from three to this is the um, government's figures between three and eight thousand trucks per day on Rosanna Road out of a total of about fifty thousand vehicles. Um, 
heavy traffic in the area is probably about the same as it is across the whole of the Melbourne metropolitan area. But the, um, but the interesting thing is that there's a very large number of vehicles and the great majority of that vehicle, the vehicles on, the, on Rosanna Road, which is in the city of Banyul, um, um, is actually motor car traffic. Um, I did my own little study um, a couple of years ago um, when I looked at, um, at the characteristics of the traffic that was on Rosa, Rosanna Road in the evening peak, outward bound. That is essentially people going home. And in an hour, I counted 1,800 vehicles. And um, at that time, only eight of them were what might be called heavy heavy vehicles. So eight, eight, eight out of 1,800. Um, so certainly, I think we shouldn't deny that there's a, there is an issue with uh, the track traffic on Rosanna Road. Um, but in terms of the total network, capability, the obvious thing to do, given that this is such a poor area as far as sustainable transport is concerned, is to actually get people who now feel obligated to travel by car, uh, including travel by car to work, which is what I mainly observed, um, into more sustainable forms of transport, um, and particularly in those areas. Um, and the, if that was really the government's objective, and it really should be, um, the whole equation changes entirely after that. Mm. Ian, we're going to have to wind up shortly, unfortunately, but but just what chance do you think we've got or you've got, um, the community's got of stopping this and, and why, how can people help in the campaign? Yeah. Well, um, really don't know uh, what the chances are. Um, mm. But, I mean, all I could point out in that space, I suppose, is that, is that the... Um, is that this this project is part of what the government calls its big bill program? As I said, it's more likely to be a boom doggle, um, and the more people start to understand its downside, which is really what we're trying to do, both in financial and, and environmental terms, um, the, the more unpopular the project will become. Um, the fact is that it's attracted very few bidders. Um, which means that the government's under pressure to basically uh, do what the, the bidders for the project want them to do. Um, it won't attract sufficient traffic to make it financially viable, so the, the taxpayer would be forced to pick up the tab. And uh, there's great uncertainty about the construction and environmental costs. I mean, we've seen the cost blow out on the Westgate Tunnel, which mm -hmm. is a much smaller project, um, particularly related to the uh, to the um, to the getting rid of um, of um, spoil from uh, from tunnelling there, a much smaller tunnel than the one we're contemplating here. Yeah. So I think that the challenge for us is to get this message out to as many people as as possible, um, and uh, and for people not to take as an uncritical a view as they have of um, of the project. Um, we're yeah. Sort of, we're sort of up against a, a bit of a, a a bit of a giant here. I mean, the government basically spent about $100 million developing this project, which, which would include the, uh, the, um, uh, the public relations spin that they put on it as well. Um, so we're relatively small, but we'd be really chuffed to knock it off. Um, I think it's in everybody's interest that it be knocked off and the, the government brought back to the, 
back to the table where they'd basically do some decent transport planning in, cons- in consultation with with the communities involved. So that's 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 where we're at. Um, not really in the in the in the, the business of predicting, um, but it's really a project <laughs> that really deserves to be challenged and knocked off. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for for challenging that, Ian, and and spending spreading the word um we're going to have to go uh, to our next speaker Just now but thank you can... thank you for coming and, on and good luck again with the campaign let's hope you do win yeah uh, if i can just say if people would go to the the website for the stop northeast link alliance uh, yep and we'll put that in the show notes terrific wonderful okay. thanks, thanks very much right thank you thank Ian. you right. Okay, well, another after the break, we're going to be talking to Daniel. Kafias are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We need the end to the war in this country and the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory because they talk treaty and still lock our people up, they still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Okay, back on City Limits, and now we have Daniel Bowen on the line from the Public Transport Users Association. Hi, Daniel. Morning, guys. How are you going? <laughs> oh, good on a on a coolish autumn morning. Not too bad. <laughs> That's no, a good very to pleasant hear. day for a bike ride this morning. It was over here, as long as you wore gloves. Um, Daniel, we just had an interview about the uh, northeast link, and we mentioned the fact that uh, the, the damage it's going to do when it gets also to the southeastern freeway, and uh, 
and the fact that that was set aside years ago to be a Doncaster rail line. But it, it, just on that point, if the North East Link goes ahead, then any, any prospect of a Doncaster rail just evaporates completely, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it, it pretty much does, based on the designs that they published. Um, the the p- certain parts of the alignment that was reserved all those years ago for the Doncaster rail line would be swallowed up in in the North East Link project, uh, particularly I think around the the interchange between the Eastern Freeway and the, and the North East uh, Tollway. Um, so yes, I, I, unfortunately they uh, they appear to be finally um, using. Um, parts of that land that that could have been used one day for rail, um, uh, and and that probably makes the the rail line impractical uh, or or prohibitively expensive to do in the future. Yes, and um, now you're from the Public Transport Users Association or the PTUA, and I was interested to hear on what your um, current campaigns are and um, what you're sort of uh, fighting for at the moment. Yeah, thanks. Um, P2A's been around for a long time, uh, well before my time. Um, it, it's, it's been uh, campaigning since the 1970s, um, initially just around trains, but expanded to other modes of public transport in the 1980s. Um, and it's interesting because the uh, up until uh, You Know What hit last year, um, mm-hmm. we had had some very strong campaigns around improving public transport services to help relieve crowding because there have been years of continued growth on the, on the system um, in thanks part to thanks in part to population growth and particularly growth in the CBD and the and the inner suburbs, which led to a lot of pressures on. Uh, trams, trains and inner city buses, um, crowding, delays, all those fun things that you think about when you think of peak hour public transport. Mm-hmm. Um, the the pandemic has obviously changed that quite considerably. So um, where you had uh, hundreds of thousands of people heading into the CBD every day, most of them by public transport, there's now a, a, a huge number of people working from home, part-time or full-time, and it's really changed the travel demand that was driving that um, that public transport patronage and, and, and thus the, the crowding, which um, had been a, you know, a big focus of campaigning, um, help relieve the crowding, add more services, all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a bit of a change of emphasis for what we're doing now and looking towards the future, uh, at least in the medium term, where um, the heat has been taken out of peak hour demand and travel patterns are, are changing for Melburnians um, as well as in and, and what we're seeing in a lot of cities around the world I think is there's there's a, a large number of office workers who might only go into the office part-time they work from home some of the time they might be more likely to make local trips um, and uh, off-peak trips for, for non-work purposes and that's um, a market that public transport sometimes isn't great at capturing. Um, so it, uh, it, in terms of, of uh, priorities for improving the public transport network, it, it, uh, it does need to um, rebalance, I suppose, to, to address that, as well as um, better capturing work trips for suburban workers, often um, uh, non-white collar workers who might be required on site more often. A lot of those people drive to work um, and 
that's uh, in, in suburban locations, and that's what leads to um, projects like the big freeway project, because the, the government gives, gives up and says, oh, well, they're all driving to work, we've got to accommodate them, rather than saying, well, let's give them a viable, uh, active and public transport alternative, um, which should be about more cycle lanes, more uh, cycle lanes and paths, better footpaths and and better suburban public transport rather than directing all the resources of the public transport network into the CBD and inner city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen, you know, some sort of um, attempts to draw back uh, people to the CBD. Like there was, I can't remember whether it was called something like the Friday Fun Days um, where sort of property council in um the like in in melbourne was kind of trying to get people um to come back and um, be patrons of of all of the businesses in the cbd but um yeah it's true that you know we could we could have an alternative to that yeah and look you can totally understand where they're coming from in terms of um trying to get things back closer to what they were um, but it really, it, it's a hard ask, I think. Um, what they probably need to do is look at ways of making the, the CBD more appealing for other reasons that you're not going to... I don't think you, it's realistic to expect um, white-collar workers to be working on site every day, um, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, because I think the world has changed in that respect, and we've seen it in a lot of cities overseas and around Australia. You know, if you think of cities like um, Perth, which never had the um, such the you know such impactful lockdowns as, as Melbourne had last year and they are still not seeing anywhere near um, the the sort of numbers in their CBD as, as they did before so I think we can expect that that's a bit of what our future looks like and um, those that are interested in getting people back into the CBD need to look at different ways of attracting people and, and making it interesting and uh, you know plenty of um, plenty of attractions that, that don't necessarily relate to work, um, and and uh, the public transport system in particular needs to needs to address this as well by um, by offering a more uh, usable service at off peak times, so that people who are heading in to the CBD after work, say for dinner or to catch a show or go to the footy or whatever it is. Um, and to other events, uh, have a good public transport option. And that should include a frequent service when they're heading home later at night and not having to wait half an hour for a train in the, in the dark you know, at the station. Um, so, you know, there's, there's opportunities there uh, for the public transport network to attract those, those trips. And I guess it points to needing the government to really look at what the emerging traffic uh, travel demand patterns are around Melbourne and making sure that the public transport network does address those. Yeah. In those areas, Daniel, where the which generate freeways in the sense that it uses the excuse to build the next freeway, people in those areas generally have a very poor public transport system, sometimes none at all, and often it's a quite infrequent bus service. Now, that's something that needs to be addressed, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, and that's 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 something we've we've had a long running campaign on, um, which we call every ten minutes to everywhere, which is really basically trying to sum up that um, all parts of uh, of of Melbourne, uh, suburban Melbourne, should have frequent public transport options, um, not the not as you say buses that run every thirty or sixty minutes, um, 
which is common now in many of Melbourne suburbs. That's not an alternative, to, not a viable alternative to driving. If, if anyone has a car, they're not going to they're, they're not going to prefer to wait 30 minutes for a bus. Um, but you know, maybe you can time your trip uh, as you head out the door um, to to work or whatever. But it's very difficult to time your trip coming home, and so you risk a long wait. And and those for those people, it's just obviously preferable to drive a car. The impacts, of course, on all of us are heavy car traffic around a lot of Melbourne suburbs and heavy demand for increased road space, which obviously has huge um, impact in terms of livability, the cost of these road networks um, for society, uh, road safety issues, obviously pollution, um, uh, particularly at the moment, given most cars are petrol-powered, and you've got impacts on, on household budgets, where in a lot of these middle and outer suburbs, um, in, in a household, you'll, you'll look and there'll be an adult, uh, sorry, a car in the driveway for every adult. So really, it, it becomes a question of what are the priorities for our, tra- our broader transport support network. Um, the, the, the saying often goes, you don't build for the, the traffic you expect, you build for the, the travel modes that you want. I think I've messed that up a bit. But, but it, it, <laughs> really, if we want to see people cycling, walking, using public transport, you have to provide the infrastructure and the services uh, to enable that. You can't just say, well, you're on your own and... Here's a road network, and oh, that's the only viable option. And 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 you shouldn't be surprised then if if uh, most people do choose to drive to most places. Mm. Um, and you shouldn't be enabling that by continually expanding the road network. You should be looking at alternatives that can be provided to those people in those areas, so they can choose not to use the car more often for more more trips to where they're going. Another problem in those areas, of course, is if you need to change from one form of public transport to another. Uh, that's a further problem in terms of waiting time quite often. And, in fact, the predecessor of yours, Paul Mees, as you would well know, you know used to complain about that regularly. Uh, has that improved over the years, or is it still pretty ordinary? It's still pretty ordinary in, in most parts of Melbourne. There have been a... Um, I mean, poor waiting times, yes, it, it really comes down again to public transport service quality and, and service frequency. And if you can run more of the network as a frequent service, then those that penalty for in, making that interchange goes away. So we have seen over the years some services upgrade to a, a decent service right through the day. We've got several train lines that run every 10 minutes all day, seven days a week, for instance, um, but we've still got an awful lot that uh, a lot of stations where you will wait, wait 20, 30, 40 minutes between trains um, outside peak hour. So it does make connections from, um, from the local bus onto the train, for instance, quite difficult, let alone coming back the other way, the train back to the local bus to get you home. Um, as I say, in many cases, a 30 to 60 minute wait. Um, there are a handful of what they call smart bus routes, which run about every 15 minutes, so most of the day on weekdays. They've been incredibly successful, but it's been more than 10 years since the last of them was commissioned. Um, so um, there is a way forward, if only the, the politicians can see it, uh, mm-hmm. boosting uh, boosting service frequency <clears throat> across the week would really help. And in a lot of cases, it's not very expensive because the fleet and the infrastructure is already available. You just need to get the drivers and the fuel and uh, get them out on the, the tracks or out on the road um, more consistently through the week to boost that frequency and cut those waiting times. Mm. 
Yeah, I suppose that's also linked to, and we've talked about this on the show before, the kind of privatisation or outsourcing of a lot of the public transport network and how, you know, having different um, companies responsible for the different transport modes um, and also, you know, kind of focusing on the profit side, it's it's more profitable to run services in uh, the peak times than off-peak. Um, so I suppose, uh, do you have any suggested solutions to that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, privatisation probably is a factor, but we shouldn't get too hung up on it. Uh, and and it's it's probably worth noting that um, the the politics from the Labor and the Coalition side is um, in favour of privatisation. Uh, both sides have, have continued the privatised public transport network since 1999 when the trams and trains um, were privatised. Um, a lot of the buses came earlier and there's there's no... There seems to be no intention from either side of, uh, of the major uh, of politics to, to undo that. But it's important to remember that um, things like the, the service frequencies are actually determined by the government in the contracts given oh, okay. to the private operators. So um, when, the, the private operators are obviously there to run the service and to make a profit, and that's what they do, and that's uh, I think if we understand that, that's fine. But it's really in the hands of the state government uh, to determine... If particular routes get get more frequent services, they put in the funding. They make sure that the infrastructure can cope with it. In the case of rail, they make sure that the fleet's available. In the case of trams and trains, and, in, and increasingly buses as well. Um, and so it, it, it's really a matter of uh, our politicians realising that if we want a more livable, more sustainable Melbourne, um, that that does mean that more people around Melbourne need to have a, a viable public transport option and um, <clears throat> putting in the funding to, to boost those services where they're needed to, to provide that viable service that people can choose to use rather than just um, hopping in the car for every trip. Yeah. Daniel, that's a positive note we're going to have to finish on because we're running out of time. But look, thanks for your time today and, um, and good luck with all those campaigns you're up to anyway. Good luck with it all. Thanks to talk to you. Thanks okay. very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Daniel Bowen there from the Public Transport Users Association. And uh, Zeb, next week it's Energy Week. Yes, it is. And we, as I said, we said we'll attempt to talk to someone from Friends of the Earth or someone about the state government's new uh, climate change ambitions announced this week. So we'll see. Yeah. Talk to you next week. That's right. Well, no, before you go, sorry, Zeb, you've got to thank Karina for doing a great job. Oh, yes. Thank Thank you so much. What would we do without you? We would we would not do anything. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.